welcome to the Bible Feed podcast, a place for conversations about the Bible and faith in the modern world, where ordinary people come together to help each other understand the Bible better. Let's get started. So welcome, dear listener, to another Bible Feed podcast, and we're cracking open the book of Revelation again. It's been uh, we, we put it on pause. We've, we've, we're doing a, a series on Revelation, and we've had a little gap, and uh, now we're getting back into the thick of apocalyptic literature and the book of Revelation. And uh, Paul Davenport, you're here to, to help us through that. Hi, Dan. Yeah, looking forward to uh, getting back into into this, the kind of central core of this of this book. That's right. So I'm going to try and remember what we've talked about. We've, we've had three conversations so far, so if you've not heard those, then then go back and, and listen if you, if you want to. And I'm just going to try and do a brief recap. So so what what is it we're talking about? It's the last book in the Bible, and it's a letter. So that's what we really focused on, didn't we? The fact that it's a real letter to real Christians living in Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey. And they're experiencing problems, suffering, persecution, yeah. or and, and a period of anxiety, really, about what really is their purpose and role and should they be expecting Jesus to return and and it's the the letter it's not like any normal letter or I don't really like write letters <laughs> any, anymore but emails or whatever it's not, it's not like a normal thing because suddenly it breaks out into this this symbolic apocalyptic literature sort of style when John the author uh, sees these things in vision happening he's invited in vision yeah. go up to heaven to to see a different point of view that that's kind of what we were looking at wasn't it yeah there was there's sort of a view from from down on the ground with these jesus communities and things they're experiencing and then immediately followed by well this is this is what it looks like from heaven from god's point of view and it was it was quite different you get a sort of a tension between those two how, how can those two be reconciled yeah so so and then the so the answer to that is well well it's we're gonna. There's a scroll that's got seals mm. on it, so it's a, a sealed scroll, a, a wax seal. We're not talking about the animals. Let's just get that straight. <laughs> We're not talking about seals. <laughs> We're talking about wax seals on a scroll. And there's a there's a great news because someone is worthy to open that scroll, and we're told it's a lion. And the Lion of the Tribe of Judah is going to do it. And you imagine this really regal, king-like yeah. figure and, you know, powerful. And it turns out to be a lamb that's been slaughtered. This lamb is the one who opens the scroll and is able to sort of mm. unveil the, the perspective on what's happening in human history and so on. And, of, and that was really interesting, wasn't it? Of course, it's a picture of Jesus himself and how that overcoming, you know, it's a, it was an unexpected thing, wasn't it? You expect to see a lion, yeah. but you see a lamb. Yeah, and it, it was a, a forceful way, I think, of portraying. You know, this is what Christian victory. And yeah. and and it's and I think what what we're seeing, what we started to see, was that in that very specific difficult period of time, these Christians in the Roman Empire, with these anxieties and concerns, could well have chosen to turn to political, hmm. forceful, violent means. Or, you know, what do they do in in life? What what's their purpose? But actually, yeah. there's this, there's a real sort of moral force to this letter. This isn't just, uh, yeah. you know, we're not treating this, this isn't a letter that's got some sort of inbuilt code about things that are necessarily going to happen. I mean, even if it does have that, there's a, there's a very much a, an important moral message which, which comes through. It starts with those words, isn't it, that we've quoted a few times. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written. That's right. Yeah. So that was the, the aim. Yeah. There's something to do with whatever we learn from this. Yeah. Good. Okay. So we're, we're getting into the meat now because, because the, the lamb is going to open yeah. these seals and that's what we're going to look at. 
we're going to try and cover certainly the seals. We'll spend most of the time on on, on the seals. There's a se- sequence of seven, and then there's a sequence of seven trumpets as well, and we'll spend a bit of time on on those as well. Yep. There's later. Uh, after this sort of gap in the middle of the book, chapters 12 to 14, there's a sequence of seven bowls. We're not really going to touch those no. uh, in, in this. Uh, and yeah, I was going to say, yeah, we, we spent a whole podcast episode doing a, a drawing of the, uh, of the structure. So if you haven't heard that, I think that's the second in this series. Yeah. So as, as we get into, uh, these seals, this, this is the area where a, a lot of interpretations of the book of Revelation go into, you know, identifying particular historical events that attach or, or are fulfilled by individual seals or trumpets and things like that. And just to be clear, as as we made clear earlier in the series, we're not really taking that sort of approach. We're we're looking at this and, and trying to hear this letter as as you said, as if we are hearing it for the first time in one of those Jesus communities in the first century. So we don't know all the history that happens after that. We're just trying to hear the message of that that book. So it doesn't really cut across those historic interpretations necessarily but i think it's important that we identify those kind of moral things that you should do with this message yeah um as uh, as an important part of the way we approach this book yeah so so let's have a look at um the seals so i think that's uh, chapter six and uh, let's just read the first few verses okay so dan you're going to play the role of the the first hearer of this okay uh, in one of those jesus communities see yeah. how this comes across to you so Now, I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice, like thunder, come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering, and to conquer. When he had opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. Out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that men should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. Its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth, to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So you've heard that for the first time. Okay. What do you think? Confused. <laughs> bad, bad stuff is going to happen. You know, that's, oh, that's, well, bad stuff is happening yeah. or, you know, something like that. There's some, yeah. some pretty nasty things there. You know, if you've got a horse with, with the rider's name called Death and Hades following, that's, that doesn't sound like good news. Mm. Yeah. It's really, it's kind of one thing after another as well. It seems, it seems to me, it's like, well, there's this conquering rider and then there's the red horse with the sword and, and then it's famine and, um, and then it's this pale horse or, and it finishes off with a summary of all the four of those, isn't it? Kind of kill with the sword and famine and pestilence and wild beasts. It's just one thing after another mm. and it almost leaves you kind of breathless. So, oh, yeah. what can happen next? What could possibly go wrong next? Yeah. And, and there's, there's sort of a little, a little bit of an explanation in each of those as to what what they represent. When there's an explanation of something like that in scripture, you don't you don't ignore it. Mm. You know, you don't you don't look a gift horse in the mouth, so to speak. <laughs> so what, what what sort of things are you talking about then? In the white horse, it's it's something to do with 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 a conquering force and okay. you know an, an invader, say. Okay. Um and actually the uh, he has a crown which is a coronal wreath. 
and, and again, we mentioned asterisks before in, in these podcasts. So uh, there's, there's, there's a, there's an asterisk book about asterisks and the laurel wreath in which he, uh, he has, I don't know what he has to do, but he ends up holding this, this coronal wreath, laurel wreath yeah. above Julius Caesar's head in one of his triumphal marches. And so that was, you know, the Roman way was go out, conquer somewhere. And then the general would come back and march through Rome with yeah. this uh, wreath over his head. Um, so it, it would be, it's an image that's familiar to people of the time, the disruption to life that happens because of a conqueror, mm. an invasion. And the second one is the sword, that, that men may slay one another. This sword is, it's the word that's used for it, it's the Roman short sword. So again, you imagine Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, and uh, G- Julius Caesar being assassinated by Brutus. It's that little short stabbing sword that thrusts into his side, and it, it's perfect for assassination. And that again was was a feature of Roman life. There was there mm. was a period not long before Revelation was written, AD sixty nine, which is which was known as the year of four emperors. And so, in that one year, four emperors um, were were on the throne and and were deposed or assassinated. And so, you know, internal strife. You've got external invasion, the threat of that, and then you've got internal strife. The next one, that seems to be talking about not enough food and, and that sort of thing, isn't it? Famines and yeah. high prices. And, you know, that's a consequence of all that, that turmoil, I suppose. Yeah, it's that economic disruption, shortage of supply of food and, and grain and inflated prices as a result, the poverty and hunger and famine that results in in the population as a result of that. And, and again, Rome was dependent on grain supplies from North Africa and, and Egypt. All that political turmoil disrupted that and people in, in Italy went hungry. And then the final one just wraps up everything else that might cause... <laughs> cause problems and disease, pestilence, death. And uh, so, so you've got the threat of invasion from outside, the, the problems of internal strife, economic disruption, famine, all the things that disrupt the daily lives of, of people. And, uh, and, st- you know, still do. Mm. You, you know, you can see the effects of conflicts in Africa or in Syria or in Afghanistan, and you see the result of, of those kind of conflicts, whether it's invasion or internal conflict, and then mm. the economic hardship that results, the disease that spreads as a result. You can see that in a very real yeah. sense. It's a poor reflection on uh, on human society, isn't it, I suppose? That's their lived experience and, and often is mm. for many parts of the world today as well. Yeah. So the imagery that's used there, what sort of observations would you make about about the imagery that's that's being used? So the the horses riding around, I and mean, we've we've talked a lot, I think, before about how there's lots of Old Testament roots in this book, as indeed there are throughout mm. the New Testament. Um, so the the imagery of the horses makes me think immediately of Zechariah, the opening vision in Zechariah, and you get horses, yeah. different colour horses, and so on. I don't know if that's a deliberate thing. It may be. They don't. The colours don't match. They're not no. identical. It's not a kind of. White, red, black, and pale. There are different colored horses, which is yeah. strange enough. It's an is, yeah. In its own way for it to be a connection. Yeah, it might, it might be connected. There almost seems to be a direct allusion at the end of, um, verse eight. These four horses were given authority over the fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and wild beasts. So that's, that's pulled out in Ezekiel. Okay. Um, in Ezekiel chapter 14, or it seems to be pulling from Ezekiel. Chapter 14, verse 21, which is all about Jerusalem 
and the things that will happen in Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians. But verse 21 there says, For thus says the Lord God, How much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence. And wild beasts was, is a concept used of invading, you know, brutal invading forces. Yeah. So you've got all of those, all of those four things wrapped up there. And it's the same four things as in um, Revelation 6 and verse, verse 8. So, so there's an element of judgment that you would perhaps link with this, but, but they're only given authority over a, a fourth of the earth, a quarter of the earth. So it's, it's quite limited. And I, I don't really see anything that says, you know, this is going, this particular thing, this horse, whatever it is, is going to happen to a particular group of people for a particular thing that they've done. It doesn't seem very targeted. It all, it seems very kind of general in, in scope. Yeah. Maybe we could see these as chaotic effects of human mismanagement, misgovernment, and the uncertainty and unpredictable nature of, um, of life for people living in those nations and countries ruled, ruled in that way. Um, and the disruptive effects of human powers that are striving against each other and competing with each other for security and domination. So that doesn't sound like a particularly good view of what's happening. I mean, because this is this is meant to be sort of answering that question, isn't it? About that, you know, what what are the mm. Christians ought to do? How do they get the view perspective from heaven, and how do they take that upon in their outlook and their worldview? But we seem mm. to have got a picture of what they see and what they're experiencing. Well, I suppose we're only four seals in. Okay, out of a sequence of seven, so right. the reader. The hearer knows there's seven of these things, and the sense you get is, well, w- once you get to the seventh, when that's going to be sorted out. God does whatever He's going to do, and that's how how it all comes to a, a culmination. So, so perhaps we should move on. Yeah, let, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. I'll keep going until you till you say stop. So, uh, Revelation six verse nine. When He opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Let's pause there. That's the fifth seal. And it's it's starting to get to, well, what what's the reaction of... Yeah, Christians are believers to to this situation. Yeah, but I think there's a pretty clear message that comes through from those few verses. Do you think? Yeah, well, it's vengeance. They they want they want to be avenged, don't they? Yeah, they want yeah revenge to to come on those who persecuted them and killed them. Yeah, so so in all this disruptive mismanagement, there there are Christians that suffer. They're slain for the witness that they had borne. So that, yeah, so there's an appeal for vengeance. And then the response 
is actually it's going to carry on. There's going to be a delay. So it's actually it's quite a hard message. They were told to wait, to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants. So there's mm. there's a delay, but it's because there are more Christians to be added to the number. More Christians that are to be added to the number of those who are going to be killed and martyred. Not a nice thing to, to hear. And, and we'll we'll think about perhaps if we get time at the end, just just what martyrdom means. Okay. Here, does it does it really mean dying, being burnt at the stake, or something thrown to the lions, or something? Does it mean that for Christ, or does it mean something else, or is it is it being used as a as a way of mm. expressing something else? So we'll think about that. Okay. Hopefully towards the end. But but again, Paul and Peter and probably a number of the other apostles were all killed. Uh, martyred during the time of Emperor Nero mm. in the 60s AD, so you know before this. So it's, it's a familiar yeah. scenario again for for people. So that's the fifth seal. Yep. So a re- an appeal for vengeance, but a message of no, it's not going to happen yet. Uh, it, 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 there's there's more to be added to the number. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so wait, there's a delay. Then the sixth seal, verse 12. Okay, when he opened the sixth seal. I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Yeah, there's language that's that's taken straight out of the Old Testament there, straight from the prophet Joel, in fact. And I'll, I'll just read one, one verse from Joel chapter 2. It says, I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So you can see all that kind of imagery mm. of the, the sun and the moon yeah. and the smoke and the darkness. And those things are, are portents of the day of the Lord, that before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So I, I think, you know, to those first hearers, the effect of this is building up that anticipation. Mm. This is the sixth one, the one before the seventh, and so which is the last one. And it's building. These are all the things that in the, those prophetic images are associated with. This is just before God intervenes. The climax, yeah. The climax is coming. Yeah, just before the climax. Just, yeah. yeah. It's at the, uh, on the threshold, as it were. Yeah. And, and you get the idea of the heaven like being rolled up and taken away so that the, the throne room is now visible. So the, the th- it's like the heaven and the earth is now being brought together and, and God is going to act. And it, and it feels like it's, it's, we, we, we're getting to that point. It feels like we're about to hear the, the end. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. And what's the last, the last phrase of that? chapter so it's who who can stand who's, who's going to stand before the, before the the lamb this great event is about to unfold who who can stand so what actually happens we go into chapter seven and it's a complete change of subject yeah so it doesn't go on to the the seventh it says after this i saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might it's almost like oh hang on just let's just pause there for a moment commercial break yeah and it's almost like 
all the actors on the stage are frozen <laughs> while the um, the narrator kind of moves among them and says, now, let me explain something to you. Okay. It, it's that sort of effect. Mm. Do, do, do you see what I mean? Mm. Yeah. It's playing with the, the hearer's expectations, isn't it? And right where you think something is going to happen, everything's put on pause and we've got some, some other yeah. picture now to think about. So, so what is that and how does that fit in? So it's a picture of... Uh, the 144,000. First of all, John hears a description of of a group of people. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from that tribe, yep. 12,000 from this tribe. Goes through 12 tribes of, of Israel, mm-hmm. which adds up to 144,000. Uh, so, so he hears a description of that, a, a numbered multitude. And, and it sounds a little bit like the numbering of an of an army, mm. you know, it's a, it's, there's a little bit of a military overtone to it. It's very much like in the Old Testament, isn't it? Well, the Book of Numbers itself, mm. you know, numbering the the Israelites. Yeah, and and that was explicitly for you know those aged between twenty and fifty that are able to go out to war. Mm. So so he he hears a description of that, but then in verse nine, he looks and behold a great multitude. So, so now he turns and looks at this multitude that's just been described, and it's it's one that's of a great number that 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 no man can number from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Mm. He heard a description of one hundred forty-four thousand. He looks, oh, it's a multitude from all nations. Yeah, expectations that. Uh, fulfilled in a, in a different way. It's, it's that thing happening again, isn't it? Yeah, but but a couple of connections back into chapter six, because remember those under the altar were told, you know, you need to wait until the number is yeah is is made up, and here's a numbered multitude. So it's the same group of people, really. This gathering of this multitude from all nations to Christ mm. is the same, and they're sealed in the forehead, and they, you know, as a mark of their. Allegiance to Christ, if yep. you like. It's the same group of people as those under the altar, the, the Christian Christian believers, essentially. So just pause at this point, just really briefly, just to think how the book is using a number, um, 144,000, this, this mm. one we're just looking at, in context and reading the, and getting the flow of the, of the letter and what mm. is happening. It's clear what you're saying is that this we're not expected to have literally 144,000 people, you know, a particular class of people. Mm. Um, and I suppose, you know, that's just one of the, the pitfalls that we can get into. I'm sure we're not mm. immune. You know, anyone reading this, we can, we can get yeah. into those sorts of pitfalls. And the way out of that is to really try and read this holistically and pay attention to the flow and the, what's happening in the in the vision and how it's connected. And actually, the, the description there of that multitude that no one could number from every nation, what are they doing? They're standing before the throne ah, okay. and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, clothed in white robes. Well, that was those group under the altars yep. were to be clothed with a white robe. And the question at the end of chapter 6... Who can stand? You know, when the action was paused, yeah. was who can stand? Well, here, here are those that can stand those that are standing and it's it's these this sealed multitude from all nations and and so then when we go into chapter eight the lamb opened the seventh seal and again you're perhaps expecting okay this is going to be it and it says there was silence in heaven oh yeah and so we won't say anything more about that but it's again it's okay well this is not quite the end that we Mm. expected it to be Mm. 
So there we've got all of those seven seals. So let's just think about the whole package mm. that we've got there. And what, what sort of message do you think people get from that whole sequence? What I think is happening is you've got a picture of these bad circumstances in the Empire. You, and then that's heightened by the fact that Christians, people, believers, are, are suffering for their witness. The, the very fact that they follow Jesus, they're suffering. And they appeal for vengeance. So if we want vengeance, we want God to act and intervene. But actually, when just when you think he's about to do it, we realize that God's going to intervene and act in a different way. Or there's more to do. There's more to, yeah. to carry on with. You know, there's more people to, to, to follow Jesus, effectively. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's the key message is there's more to come to Jesus. And it's explaining that the, this situation exists. You know, God knows that you want it to end but explaining that the delay is for others to be mm. brought to Jesus and mm. to be saved and to be sealed. And that really creates quite a different view of the situation, a different perspective. Mm. Because because where do, where do all these people come from that are sealed? They come from every nation, from tribes and peoples and languages. And the people that those souls under the altar appealed for vengeance was those who dwell on the earth. Well, that's where... These, these people are going to be sealed from. That's where people are going to be yeah. brought to Jesus from. So it kind of stops you thinking, oh, well, there's, there's us Christians and then there's everybody out there in the world. Yeah. And it's us and them and never the twain will meet. Yeah. I think it's trying to get across the point that actually you've got to be reaching out to those people because the reason things carry on is because, you know, God wants, Jesus wants more from from those people out there in the world. Mm. And that, that's, a, that's a really powerful message. Mm. Yeah, it is. That's, um, it complete, again, <laughs> completely changes the expectations, doesn't it? it you're expecting mm. God to come and, uh, and bring vengeance and to act on your behalf and save you and conquer, overthrow these wicked people. And actually the answer is he'd quite like you to get out there and, and, and bring some Hmm. some of the principles of Jesus to these people. Yeah, although, although it doesn't, from what we've seen so far, it doesn't explain anything about how those people come to be sealed. Okay, yeah. But the general point, which is, you know, God wants so much more than 144,000 literal Israelites. Yeah. It's it's from all people, from those that dwell on the earth. And the reason things carry on the way they are is to present the opportunity for, for those people. So. so there's a time delay, and this is why. Should we move on to the trumpets then? I think we should. So chapter 8, you know, we said the seventh seal was just silence, and then it immediately goes into um, seven trumpets given to seven angels, and now we're going to go into a sequence of seven trumpets. So you can imagine the audience reaction. They've been through the roller coaster of, of the seven seals. You know, we're getting near the end, it's about mm. to happen. Oh, there's a different message here. And then it's another sequence of seven starts. And so you can imagine the audience kind of getting, okay, we, we're getting the hang of this now. Mm. Um, we can see the, the pattern and how, how it's, how it's going to work. And it's a similar kind of pattern. And we won't look at it in anywhere near as much detail, but there's the first four trumpets targeted at, um, at the natural world, at the earth, the seas, the rivers and, and the heavens. And um, they've, they contain things like darkness, hail and fire, waters turned to blood, mm -hmm. and the sun turned to darkness. So just skimming through it, where do we think this might be drawing from, from the Old Testament? That's undoubtedly the plagues on Egypt. 
uh, early half of Exodus. Yeah, and, it, and in fact, I think it calls them plagues. So, yeah, at the end of chapter 9, uh, it refers to them as plagues. So it's it's deliberately yeah. taking your mind to the plagues at, at the time of Israel coming out of Egypt in the record in Exodus. And, you know, all that ha- that happened as a preliminary to God's people in ancient times mm. being released from slavery and the Egyptians being judged for their oppression and so on. There's a reference to scope of, of it. So each, each of them is a third of whatever is affected, a third of okay. of the trees, a third of the, yeah. and a third of the ships and so on. So that's different from before, isn't it, where it's a quarter? Yeah, it's true to say that a third is bigger than a quarter. I think that's right. You know, apparently there was a burger chain that uh, started selling burgers that were a third of a pound instead of quarter pounders. I won't mention the country, <laughs> but it's a country that loves its burgers. <laughs> and, and lots of them thought, no, I'm going to stick with a quarter pounder because that, that must be bigger. But no. <laughs> okay. So a third is definitely bigger than a quarter. So it's sort of ramping things up a bit. Yeah. So we've got four, a sequence of four. Yeah. They come quite quickly one after the other again, but evoking plagues, a bit more associated with judgment. And then we've got fifth and sixth trumpets, a bit of a longer description, but it's all about locusts, which is, is again, one of the uh, the plagues in Egypt, and is also probably pointing back to Joel. Joel's prophecy as well. We, we haven't really got the time to read chapter 9, have we? But if yeah. anyone wants to, it's so obscure, isn't it? And and grotesque, the, the imagery of these locusts. Yeah, so without going into the, into the detail of that, but we've got the idea of the pattern now. We've got a sequence of four and then another two. And then we're going to get to the end of chapter 9. Yeah. So let's just read chapter 9 and verse 20. Okay. So this is how this, this finishes off. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So how does how does that compare with the first sequence? Yeah, so the question was, um, who can stand? And everyone was running away from God and, and from the, the Lamb yeah. when it's you know, they, so they, they didn't embrace God and the Lamb. Um, so here again, these judgments are escalated, but no one's repenting. So we've still got a problem. Is that is that what's happening? We've got the same sort of pattern, but this time the the sequence of four plus two is is a bit more judgment. You know, God could send all these kind of judgments, could do those things, but what would the what would the impact be? What would the effect be? What would the outcome be? Yeah, it seems to be suggesting at the end that it wouldn't actually bring people to repent, mm. which is, you know, from the first sequence, that what God, that's what God wants. So how is it then? That's the question. How is it that people are going to repent? That's begging the question. That's the, the problem. And then we go again into a pause the action. Okay. We've got one, two, three, four, five, six. Not got to the seventh yet. Pause the action again. And we've got two chapters then, chapters 10 and 11, that are, okay, let me explain something else. Yep. Uh, about this situation before we get to the seventh. We're not going to look at chapter 10. We're just going to focus on chapter 11, which has these two characters. They're just called two witnesses at the beginning of chapter 11. They're described in ways which links them to the prophets. Yeah. So, yeah, who are they? They are those who worship in the temple. And now if we just flick back to chapter 7, where those 144,000, that great multitude are described... Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. 
I think is the same group of people. It's, it's, it's Christian believers. The same as the souls under the altar, the same as the 144,000, the same as the great multitude. And now they've been described as two witnesses. And that's partly an Old Testament thing, like out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word will be established. And there's two witnesses. But they've got to do something now. And what happens to them, without reading through the chapter here, but would certainly recommend you read it through with this thought in mind, what happens to them? They they witness, but then they are killed. In verse 7, they are killed and they lie for three and a half days and then they're raised. These The, the bodies of these two witnesses come back to life. I, I think this is sort of saying these two witnesses which represent Christian believers, they have to participate in the sacrifice of of their Lord, of their master. Mm. You know, he went through, he died, he was in the grave for three days and then rose. Yeah, it, it, it makes the connection to that, doesn't it? When it says where it's happening, it's called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. I mean, whatever that that means, there's a direct link to yeah. the death of Jesus there. Yeah, and that's that's completely consistent concept with the earlier parts of the New Testament. You know, if you think of in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, where the sharing of the bread and wine is described you know the cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of christ Mm. because there's one bread we who are many are one body we all partake of the one bread so that's an active symbol in christian communities to participate in in the death and resurrection of their lord and to behave in a way which reflects that as well yeah that's all i think we've got time to say about chapter 11 but the end result is in verse 13, there was uh, there was a great earthquake. Tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The rest, the remnant, the rest were terrified and gave glory to God. Oh, okay. So it, unlike the end of the, the seals, where they didn't repent, they just carried on, they're, they're afraid and they're giving glory to God. There is, there is an impact on people because of these witnesses showing in their, in their lives the example of, uh, of their Lord's sacrifice being a lamb yeah so so this is this is great so it's it it sounds like you, you know in a, in a period of difficulty a period of suffering and a period of martyrdom or a period of you know experiencing sufferings because you're a christian you might feel tempted to call on god for mm. vengeance but actually the answer is well i don't want to intervene straight away because there's a whole lot more people who yeah. i want to be sealed to be those people yeah. to follow the lamb to follow Christ, and then, it, it, then it's heightened through the trumpets, yeah. like we've just seen. You know, can't you can't you judge the world? Come on, God, can't you do this? And actually, no, because they're not going to repent from that. There's a, a greater chance that people, the people that He wants out of all nations, will repent by the witnessing of of you yeah. going out there and 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 you know sharing in the sufferings of Christ and participating and being a good witness. So it's um yeah it's a very powerful message, isn't it? Yeah. I mean when you think about so the first sequence there's there's a delay because more people um are to come to, and be sealed to to belong to Jesus. But the sec- the second the message from the second sequence is how's that going to happen? Well, it's because of those that are already Christians displaying in their lives the self-sacrifice and the service that Jesus showed and the participating in that um, that way of life, that's what brings people to to give glory to God. That's what a faithful and true witness to, to Jesus looks like. And I think that is really powerful because it's not just we've got to put up with and wait for God to finish and for others. It's we've actually got to 
be part of the process of um, mm. of bringing those bringing those people into into the number. And so yeah. you're really starting to get now what the point of that opening verse is. Blessed are those that hear and keep what is written in this because this is a real call to action i think for um for christians yeah and how that that change of perspective from viewing what's going on in the world viewing what's going on in the churches and all the difficulties that they're experiencing from those opening chapters about to the specific churches but now being invited to see the perspective from heaven actually there is yeah there's a, a call to to do something, a call to, to live following Christ because you're furthering God's purpose by doing that. Okay, so good. Right, is there anything else? I mean, I think we've probably also touched on the the, the, the martyrdom question. Okay, yeah. In that second sequence, while you know, in a figurative sense, the two witnesses die and, and, and are raised again. So perhaps when the figure of martyrdom is used in, in the book, it isn't calling Christians to, to be physically killed, but it's just a way of emphasizing the level of commitment that is involved in following mm. Jesus. I Many Christians did suffer ultimate mm. martyrdom, didn't yeah. they? But, but not every, everyone did. But it reminds me of, um, it's Galatians, Galatians 2, I think, where Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ, mm. but Christ lives in me. That, that kind of thing. Yeah. So let's, um, close this up then. So we've seen there's two sequences the seals and then the trumpets and we've got the idea of there's a delay before god intervenes and that's because there's going to be more that need that need saving more people to be part of god's that number and uh and then the the trumpet sequence is that well the delay is because his people have got to be out there witnessing and witnessing to jesus and that's how people repent and then give glory mm. to god so so yeah it, it this is this is a, a powerful, powerful message, isn't it? And that witness is very Jesus-centred, very Jesus-focused, isn't it? Yeah, good. Well, thank you very much, Paul. There's, there's more to look at in this book. So there's more uh, fascinating and intriguing passages that we'll, we'll look at another time. Uh, so thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, this was always going to be a, a, a skim over things. But uh, yeah, so go, go back and read those chapters. And if you've got questions, then throw them our way. Yeah, especially the locusts. Read all about that. That's good. Okay, brilliant. And yeah, by all all means, get in touch. Um, Find us at biblefeed.org or find us on Facebook or Instagram and let us know what you think. So thank you very much and see you again next time. You've been listening to the Bible Feed podcast. Thanks for joining us. We're always keen to hear what you think, hear your questions or subjects you'd like to discuss. So get in touch with us on our Facebook page or send a message from our webpage at biblefeed.org and be part of the journey.